Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. It's where John enters into the whole story of the Last Supper uh, that we find so predominant in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, but he doesn't go into it in the same way the Synoptic Gospels do. In fact, is he picks up in the middle of it and uh, doesn't necessarily have to set the scene that, uh, that the, that the uh, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke set. And so <clears throat> he simply says, when Judas had gone, Jesus said. And so we remember in the story that, you know, the story of the betrayal. And uh, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And in saying, one of you will betray me, um, they ask, is it I, is it I, is it I? And... Um, and finally, he answers Judas, yes, and uh, then he tells him to go and do whatever it is that he's going to do, and Jesus leaves, leaves the room. So when this has happened, John's gospel then kicks in and says, now has the Son of Man been glorified, and in him God has been glorified. The glorification of Jesus in the gospel of St. John is the passion, the death, and the resurrection his glorification is therefore a single event that uh, it's not spread out into the three into the three separate entities but the glorification begins with his uh, arrest and ends with his resurrection and he says that now this is his glory now why why would you call the passion and the uh, and the crucifixion the resurrection we can understand that that's the glory of the lord um, why, why would he call the passion and, and the crucifixion the glorification of the Lord? Well, he goes on to, to tell us this in the rest of this gospel, this short gospel. He goes on to say, what does it mean that the Son of Man is glorified? And then he goes on and he says, I shall not be with you much longer. I will give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. By this love you have for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. We have a hard time, I think, in, culturally with this word love because it has become so overused and it has become so misappropriated that the whole idea of what's at the very core of the whole thing sometimes eludes us. And so we can call a casual encounter we can call a casual encounter, we can call um, an infatuation, um, we can call a preference for, we can do all of those things and call it love. And in so doing, if we do that, and if we leave love in that kind of uh, definitional framework, then basically the gospel becomes virtually unintelligible for us. Because do we believe that to love one another, the love of neighbor, is a new commandment, that no one ever thought of it before, that no one ever, of course it isn't. So what is Jesus then saying, and what is he doing, and how is he kind of imposing this as a commandment, when it's kind of natural in a way for us to love our neighbor, um, our friend, um, our, our the persons in our families, and so forth. 
Um, not necessarily always so, but it's not an unusual phenomenon to discover. So what in the world is going on? Well, first of all, I think that we have to look back to this idea of the glory of the passion and the crucifixion. That the one thing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, in many, many ways, um, is, is a most remarkable, we're so used to it, we're so used to the incarnation, we're so used to the idea of the Annunciation, so used to the idea of the birth of the Lord, so used to the good deeds that Jesus did in the course of his lifetime. But do we know what lies underneath that? First of all, the idea of the incarnation is incredibly revolutionary. It is incredibly um, incomprehensible in so many ways. We know that it is surrounded in uh, the book of Revelations, at least, with the idea of the angels refusing to serve a God who is, who is less than they are. Um, we find that in, in Lucifer's Non Serviam, and, and then we read in, in Revelation about the great battle between Lucifer and, um, and Michael, the archangel, because knowing that, the, that God himself was to become human, whom the, some of the angels felt were far, far beneath them in the created order, um, and they're therefore refusing. They did, not they did not refuse to serve the great, the living God as such, but they refused to serve him in a human form. And, uh, and so there began then the, 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 the radicalness of the incarnation is first experienced in the celestial choirs of angels. And uh, from them, of course, we, we find Satan and we, we find the demons. Then the next radical thing that happens is that if, in fact, God is to come to earth, and this is the expectation in so many ways of the messianic um, hopes of Israel, that, um, that certainly shouldn't he come as a great king, shouldn't he come as a great ruler, as someone who could take over the world, as someone who would crush all the powers of evil, of someone who would kind of recreate a fallen world into its original glory and luminosity and so forth. Isn't that something that we could expect of the fact of a God becoming man? It is something we could expect, and it's something that Israel expected. And yet the greater scandal, and the, we call the, 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 the scandal of the incarnation was, he came through a poor, in, insignificant maiden, in uh, in the village of Nazareth, he came in into a human form where he was a lowly peasant, where in fact that um, in fact we, there's all sorts of discussions. If Joseph was a carpenter, then he probably was a member of the middle class, and so it's wrong to call Christ poor growing up. Um, what the truth of that is, of course, nobody really knows for sure. But the fact is that they were, in one sense, homeless travelers. They were, in another sense, than Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. They were in the flight into Egypt. They, they were, they were uh, refugees. Um, it hardly sounds like a, a middle-class existence. That he came, therefore, in some kind of poverty, and in some kind of the lowest of the low class. 
He even identifies himself with the lowest of the low class within Israel by calling himself a shepherd. For the shepherds were the poorest of the poor. They were the ones that uh, that people hated to see come into town because in living with their sheep, um, they they were of course unclean and uh, they they smelled of uh, well they smelled of what it would be like to live in a barnyard, and uh, and so what they so here now Jesus even consciously identifies himself with them. So that this, this, um, and, and even Paul says, you know, he, he, uh, his, his equality with God was not something that he clung to. That, um, that he became the lowest of the low. He became, this is one of the great battles between the, uh, the Franciscans and the papacy in the, in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, that, uh, that that he did never extinguish uh, distinguish himself in in society he worked as a as a laborer um when he became a little older worked was in then even the nazareans say isn't this isn't this the son of the carpenter isn't this the carpenter the son of the carpenter in other words you know um it's it's hard to to put together what carpentry was in the first century. It's not the complex um, reality that it is today, um, and so it was not such a high high skilled job as it might be today. So that everything points to the loneliness of the Lord. Everything points to the fact that God comes to earth in a scandalous sort of way. He doesn't come in the palaces and he doesn't come in the great fortresses of the world. He doesn't come in the great urban centers of the world. He comes in a small town in rural Palestine of parents who are, who are not wealthy and uh, who have all the signs and, and signature of, of the poor. And he, uh, he even identifies himself with the lowest class of society, which, which were the shepherds. And uh, it, it's interesting, too, of course, that this ties in with the Old Testament, because what was David doing when Samuel went to Bethlehem to find one of Jesse's sons to anoint king? Um, the youngest one whom Samuel asked about and who Jesse called in from the fields was a shepherd also. So, and then he's talking about being arrested, being publicly abused, being scourged, being mocked, being betrayed by his own people, um, and uh, eventually being killed and saying, well, this is the glorification of this Son of Man who came into the world in all of these, all of these situations which were contrary to any expectations that anyone would have. And if, in fact, we were to find ourselves in the same situation, it would, be, it would not be unusual for us to find ourselves in the position of Lucifer, saying, I'm not going to worship this kind of a god, for heaven's sakes. You know, what kind of god is this? And uh, and he even comes in a form of, of of existence which is far beneath us, and so and so did the people of Israel look upon him in that way. I think that this is an incredibly important point too, and the reasons it's an incredibly important point is because they were ultimately disappointed in who the Messiah had turned out to be.
They had clues, and they kind of knew who he was. Herod um, knew of such a figure, knew of such a character. And when when the Magi of the East came to him, he called in the he called in the, the scribes and and the prophets and said, "Where was this supposed to happen?" So he 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 had a familiarity that the child who was going to come and take over the throne of Israel in his mind was to be born in Bethlehem. He also, we also find that um, we, we hear throughout the gospel where people are aware, and, and how can this man be the Messiah? How can this man be even a, be a prophet? If he knew if he was a prophet, he would know the kind of people he's associating with, and he would know in associating with them that... Uh, that they were not, um, you know, that they were not kind of the, they were not the kind of people that you should associate with in public. Um, <laughs> and so, and so their disappointment with him led to anger. And I think we can understand that. Have you ever really invested yourself in another person in some ways who has turned out to disappoint you, who has turned out not to be who you thought they were, who has turned out to be maybe have characteristics which you you never knew of, you never you never saw, you never perceived. And and so there's this kind of first kind of a shock and then kind of a disappointment and then kind of a deterioration of the relationships of friendship that go on through that. I mean, this is a normal human thing, and this is something, of course, that Israel itself is experiencing, and Israel itself is involved in, the disappointment in the Lord. Well, disappointment still stays at the heart of the Christian experience, that certainly the current anger toward the church and the current disaffiliation from the church, all of those kinds of things um, are the result of disappointment. The, the crushing disappointment of the Western world after the First and the Second World War, we're supposed to be, you know, we are supposed to, to not have to do these kinds of things. The church failed us. The church did fail us in the people who failed the church and the people who failed Jesus Christ. As members of the church, yes, that was an ecclesiastical failure. Um, and so now they say, well, since they failed us, we will not trust them. And, and of course, to, to wit, we have uh, the, the German Synod um, and all of the dissident voices within Catholicism around the world and in our own country as well. Um, we, we have tragic organizations like Catholics for a Free Choice, and we have Catholics supporting Planned Parenthood, and we have Catholics in high position who seem to believe nothing. And, uh, and, and cling to a title for the sake of political expedience. These things are difficult, and, and these are disappointing. Isn't, the, isn't it terribly disappointing that the Church has not been able to overcome the crime of abortion? The church is, 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 isn't the Church disappointing because she has not eliminated poverty in the world? Isn't the Church disappointing because she hasn't been able to bring universal peace into the world? Yes. She is disappointing, but we must remember also that so too is Jesus, and for her to share the fate of the Master is not something that we have to grieve over, because what we understand that in the mysterious ways of God, these things are working unto the salvation of humanity somehow, and that when people bemoan the Church, 
um, when people bemo- bemoan the church and, and say, well, I'm going to leave the church because so-and-so calls themselves a Catholic and, and they're not, and all this kind of thing. Um, I mean, what we should be saying is, this is a tragic situation, perhaps, but I wonder what the Lord is doing about this. I wonder how, how he's using this for our salvation. I wonder how he is dealing with this for our good, because it is in the suffering and in the disgrace that somehow or other the glory, of, the glorification of the Lord took place. Perhaps, too, in the church, these tragic flaws, these tragic stumbles, um, certainly back in the uh, Hugo Rahner speaks about, you know, the history littered with the rusting weapons of, of you know, of, of the church's mission. Um, it's, it's, it is, and, and, and Hugo Rahner then also um, portrays the church as the poor dusty pilgrimage, pilgrimess of the desert. That were she grand and glorious, you know, she is bound to fall from the heights. We know that in the Christendom of the Middle Ages, that the church fell from the heights at the point of the Reformation, when in fact 75% of all the priests in Germany left the priesthood, and all the convents were closed, and the nuns forced out, not all, some resisted, but most didn't, and were forced out into the secular world to live a secular life. Um, a terrible failure of the church and a, a terrible reflection on kind of the indifference of the of the Roman center of the church of of Leo the Tenth and and uh, some and Clement the Seventh and so forth. So yes, so the glorification is somehow or other tied up with with misfortune in our eyes that the glorification is tied up in some way, shape, or form with failure. For if in fact, if in fact we, we, uh, we, we were to triumph, and we, we would give ourselves credit for that. There's a great poem by George Herbert called The Pulley, and it's a story of creation. And in that creation, the Lord gives mankind everything. And then he comes to the end, he says, wait a minute, there's one thing I'm going to withhold. Because if I don't, if there's not something lacking in humanity, then they would tend to worship the work of their own hands and not the work of the Lord. In other words, it's the very structure of our being that we take credit for the good things that we do in our lives. And we hear the stories of the self-made man or the self-made woman. We hear the poem Invictus, um, of the Victorian poem Invictus, in which we say, you know, I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my soul. We have a tendency to take credit for everything God does. We have a tendency to take credit for it ourselves. And so, in a way, George Herbert's insight in the poem The Pulley is really fascinating to me. But here in the Gospel, Jesus is saying basically the same thing, in my failure, in my failure is the glory of God. For in this, humanity cannot claim in any way, shape, or form the power of its own redemption, of its own salvation. Certainly, and this is the key as we goes on now to the idea of love, this is the key of love, is that <clears throat> you, out of love for the failed Messiah who rose from the dead and triumphed in heaven, that out of love for him and for one another, 
we therefore participate in his grand and general plan for the salvation of the redemption of humanity. So he says, little children, and this is, he doesn't use this in the gospel. He uses this basically, John does. John uses this in his letters, but not, not in the gospel much. So he's, he's, he's addressing them kind of not in a demeaning sort of way, but in a way of, you know, new learners, those beginning to understand a journey, those beginning to understand something that they can't grasp, they can't, they can't get a hold of. I give you a new commandment, love one another. Well, loving a neighbor, as I said, is not a new commandment. So what does he mean by that? For love one another just as I have loved you. Well, we have just seen the story of his glorification. He has just manifested to us what it means to love another. And then he's saying this is our mission as well. The mission <clears throat> to give ourselves completely. I think of a, of a saint that... that that certainly shows that is is Saint is Saint Damien de Vester, the uh, Saint Damien of Molokai, the Sacred Hearts Belgian priest who who went to the leper colony in Molokai and and died with the lepers as a leper. We find it also in Maximilian Kolbe in exchanging himself for for the father of a family and and being willing to starve to death for the sake of for the sake of love of neighbor and. Um, and so these are the radical examples, and these why these these people are canonized. This is the this is the radical example of what Jesus is saying. It means to be glorified, for it is in his total self giving of himself, his total loss of everything that the created order could provide him with, his loss and his and and his willing loss of even his life as he goes through the kangaroo courts of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, that, um, that, yes, yes, this is new. This is new in the sense that love means the giving up of the self for the sake of another. And I think that we can see this, that loving another person means that their well-being is more important to us than our own. Can we say, well, this is just a made-up little kind of saying? No, because what does Jesus do? How does he love them whom he says to love one another? How does he do that? He does that by giving up his very life, by giving up his dignity, by giving up his rightful position in the world, by giving up all of those things for the sake of the people he loves. And we will sometimes see this kind of love in parents. We will see it again. Another saint example is St. John of Beretta Mola, who rather than take the life of her child, chose to take the risk of dying herself, which she did. And, uh, and now I understand the daughter that was born um, at the cost of her mother is starting an institute for life of some kind in Springfield, Illinois. So, so in some way trying to take that love which she received and to share that with others in, in a way that is consistent with, with our modern world. Not everyone necessarily must die for the sake of the other, but I think that others should be willing to do so. Out of um, how a parent would not sacrifice themselves for the sake of their children, 
um, and 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 what friend would not would not sacrifice themselves for the sake of their friend, and so forth. Um, but to take that on a wider scale, and to find it and express it in a way that is universal, is very difficult for us. We are manipulated in every violent conflict in the country, in the in the history. We're vi- we're, we're 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 manipulated. Um, by by propaganda, by media, and so forth, to learn to uh, to hate in order that we might kill, and um, and it's not getting into the question of just wars and unjust wars and so forth. It seems to me that becomes a more tenuous, uh, with increased capacity for the destruction that we have. It becomes an ever more untenable position to hold, but. That's certainly a matter of discussion and certainly a question that we have to face in our contemporary world. And, and I myself am, am certainly not giving the final answer on it. But, but we do know that the opposite of what Christ has commanded is what causes violence. It's what causes war and destruction because we learn to hate, to demonize those <clears throat> whom the leadership and, and those whom the power brokers of a society have chosen to try and eliminate, try and, and destroy. We have to come to the point of hating them in order that we are willing, therefore, to go after them. Um, Jesus' commandment of love is not bound to family and friends. It means that all humanity is worthy, no matter how how nefarious their deeds may be. All humanity is worthy of human love, for God loves them, and he has created them. God even cares about the demons. And if we notice in the stories of possession, he never, he, he never harms them. He simply expels them and gets rid of them from the torment that they're giving to some human persons whom he loves. And so he's, he, he may discipline them, but he doesn't hate them and he doesn't destroy them. Um, certainly not everyone does everything right. And so we also know that there are people who it becomes more difficult for us in some way, shape, or form to care for, to love. And yet, if we were to follow the Lord's commandment, we would eliminate war. If we were to follow the Lord's commandment, we would eliminate family violence. If we were to follow the Lord's um advice, his, his command. Um, we would live in, in a society that's not torn apart by radical political differences and that does not favor evil as public policy. We would do all of that kind of thing. So his, ad, his, his commandment is not frivolous. It demands the very interior core of the human person respond in a way shown to us and experienced by us in the passion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For if we believe in the resurrection of the dead, and if we believe in the eternal life, then certainly it is, more, it is easier for us to care, to be caring, and to be less possessive of ourselves and more generous with ourselves toward others. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. 
archives of foundations and faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.